Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to Condensed Histories, the podcast that takes pop culture and reveals the real history underneath. I'm your host, Jem Daduchu, and what we're doing this time round is the history of satire, or type of comedy, I did a while ago. I'm not going to guess when it came out. The history of comedy generally, and I said, ah, satire, kind of its own thing, has its own history, and I'd love to do an episode on that, and that's what's happening right now, okay? So, yeah, we're going to go back a long way. But at the same time, we're going to be talking about a lot of stuff that maybe you've seen, and if you like, the modern-day problem with satire as well. So this is sort of both timeless and also extremely contemporary simultaneously, which means I've been looking forward to doing this one, okay? So I'm going to start with a fun little slightly depressing story. Okay, fine. The year is 1999. And Mike Judge creates a satirical look at the world of working in an office with the movie Office Space. The key joke here is that one of the key people in the movie gets hypnotized. And so basically doesn't care about all those little things that other people do seem to care so much about in the office world. It has Jennifer Aniston in it. And it was well written, it was well reviewed, and it basically didn't do anything at the box office. It did, however, get a cult following to the point where when they start attacking the fax machine, that whole sequence is mimicked in a number of different things, including Family Guy, which is also an example of satire. More on that in a bit. But the point is, it was well regarded. You you put all your effort in and it doesn't really pay off. So Mike Judge decided to try that again. And in 2006, he created one of the most biting, one of the most, as it turned out, dangerous and prescient satires called Idiocracy. And in 2006, this movie didn't really come out. This was so buried by the film studio that there isn't even a trailer for it. It basically was released in under 200 cinemas, theatres, if you think about that for a moment, if we're talking about a bit of a gross-out silly comedy, it may have been satirical, but something like that, why not release it? These things tend to not be particularly expensive, although because it's sort of set in the future, it did mean that there needed to be a little bit of special effects work on. They constantly nickeled and dimed 
judge to death on this thing. So in the end, he reached out to his friend Robert Rodriguez, who ended up doing a few of the special effect shots for free for his friend. So well done, Rodriguez, there for being just a completely stand-up guy. And basically, nobody saw... If you are one of those legendary people who actually saw this in 2006 in a movie theatre in America, because that's the only place it was released, please reach out to me. Tell me about that precious time. What did it feel like? And so what happened, I stumbled across this, like everybody else did, because it certainly wasn't given any sort of headway, where basically I watched a list on YouTube and they talked about best fictional US presidents, and suddenly I see Terry Crews, He's got a red, white, and blue Stars and Stripes kind of vest on. And he's sort of like chanting in front of a crowd. And it's like President Comancho. It's like, what is this? Why is he firing a gun into the ceiling of the Capitol Dome? It's like, this seems interesting. And then I came across Idiocracy. And so what's brilliant about Idiocracy as a satire is it kind of tells you everything you need to do. So the basic gag is this. Luke Wilson is nowadays, in our time, the most average man in America. He's not dumb, but he's not smart. He's of average intelligence. He's of average ability. He's just always that middle point on the median line. He's doing all right. And basically, he's working in some kind of, like, file department in the U.S. military, in the U.S. Army. And so they have this test. They're trying to work out whether they can cryogenically suspend people. And so the idea is that they are going to be suspended. He's going to be suspended for one year. And basically, they also hire a working girl who has no family or friends or anything like that. And it's the same thing with Luke Wilson because if anything goes wrong, it's a total plausible deniability and all that kind of stuff. So both this man and woman are put in separate freezing chambers for one year, but then things go wrong and they wake up about 400 years in the future. And the reason why it's called Idiocracy is the opening, which I've heard some people have a go at, but there is an element of truth to this in the sense that you see these wild families, okay? And they, they don't seem to have a lick of sense between any of them. And yet they have like eight children. And it's like, why? If you're trying to be a Florida stunt water skier, if that's your entire career and you're trying to jump jet skis over a crocodile or alligator, I suppose, then you're probably not going to be wearing Mensa anytime soon. And yet you go around impregnating about 16 different women. And these women also aren't the smartest girls around because why would you want to get impregnated by that moron? Whereas if you're well-meaning and well-educated and you're like, I've got to wait for the right time to have children and things like that. So you tend to get middle-class families having one or two kids and you tend to have these people just running wild with like eight children. And the hypothesis is, well, surely if that tracks over centuries, the general intelligence is going to decline. And indeed, you know, there's this always this feeling of the older generation that the younger generation is somehow dumber than you. I would challenge that wholeheartedly. I may not understand things my kids are doing, but it doesn't make them dumb. That's a very big difference there. So with Idiocracy, Mike Judge sort of tracked this thing. And this is in 2006. 
that basically we would have the overt commercialization of the president and that the president was just just saying wild and crazy stuff to just whip up the crowd and basically blame everything on foreigners and say, but you're okay with me and you're all amazing and let's just eat buckets of fried chicken and stuff like that. President Camacho stood before the world and promised everyone that Joe would solve all their problems. He would not only end the Dust Bowl and heal the economy, but he would cure acne and car sickness as well. That was 10 years before the Donald Trump presidency. And yeah, once we get into sort of 2016, to particularly once we get into like 2001, the January 6th stuff, it all looked kind of prescient. And the other thing I love, small detail, is while they were trying to come up with the futuristic outfits, which were also incredibly dumb, they basically found these clunky plastic shoes. They went, well, yeah, only an idiot would think that those are comfortable. They're molded plastic and they just seem, you know, they're not very flexible. They don't seem very practical. So yeah, let's give everybody in the future these dumb plastic shoes, which are called Crocs. And how many of those are around in the world today? And so basically, so many people have said, there have been posters up in America going, Idiocracy was not meant to be a documentary and, and things like that. And of course, it's got things wildly wrong. But at the same time, and also, this is, I guess, technically, with Terry Crews being a black president in this, and this was before 2008, before you get Barack Obama, who in 2006 was pretty much unknown, a very obscure congressman. And so, wow, you know, it, it just hit all these things. So, look, that is just one example. There, I'm going to tell you about loads of different types of, of satire out there, but it's just, I think that's a pretty good place to start. And so, what satire is, I figured I would actually define it and then go back to some other great satires, is it's the use of humour or irony or exaggeration to expose or criticise a vice trend or stupid form of, of legislation. Obviously, politics is the first thing that you can skewer, but you can skewer things like fashion trends with crocs and, and things like that. There's light bits of satire in all kinds of things. Even something like the 1993 Sylvester Stallone action vehicle, Demolition Man, where, again, he's frozen, he appears actually not that far into the future in California, but basically shows the, the, the concept, taking the art logically into the future, that, hang on, if we are sort of like incredibly socially conscious, environmentally aware now, what's it going to look like in a couple of generations' time, or a generation or so's time, is everybody going to be so incredibly goody two-shoes that we don't ever actually want to do anything fun and we start banning things like action movies and do you know what there is an element of that today the films you know the the sweary gory and indeed sexist movies that, that stallone and other people made in the past just simply wouldn't be greenlit today in 2023 and we can all say that that's potentially a good thing, particularly the sexism part. But do you know what? I quite like a sweary, shooty, you know, yee-haw, buddy action cop type movie. And they just don't exist anymore. The reason why people keep going back to the 80s and 90s films is because there is a dearth of them today. Yeah, John Wick is amazing. It has better stunt work, better action than any of those other films. But there is no humour to them. And there isn't a lot of sort of like witty one-liners. They're very good at the action. They are world-class. Cinematically, perhaps some of the best ever 
in terms of action and stunts, and that's it. They don't do anything else in the movies, but they are, you know, I absolutely love the John Wick movies. So, whereas something like Lethal Weapon, and again, you know, we now have problems with Mel Gibson, and justifiably so for the record, but there's no taking away. It's a really entertaining film. It has some very serious bits in it, but it also has some fun bits in it. It has humour in it as well. It's just the full package. I'm not going to say it's a four-quadrant movie, because of course, yes, it's very much not aimed at children. So you can get satire popping up everywhere. A great example from Britain, which so many people don't realise is British, are things like Sasha Baron Cohen's movies. Things like Borat, for example. Borat, for a time, was the single biggest grossing British movie ever. Now, it's like, well, hang on, he's not in Britain, he is not playing a British person, but it's like, yeah, but he is British, it was funded by British backers, it was a character he created in a British TV show, the Ali G show, so he first came to his notoriety by playing Ali G, who was also a satirical character. Basically, this thing that still exists today of these kind of white kids who dress black who kind of put on this West Indian type accent and they're trying to be super cool, but you could argue it's all cultural appropriation, but it's ridiculous. Particularly when his references are things like South Central LA and yet he lives in States, which is a very boring part of Britain, okay? And there are no drive-by shootings happening there. And when it was turned into a movie, it was really silly, really gross out, fun and made money. But then in the Ali G show, what he actually did is while he was dressed as Ali G, he would interview people. It's that classic thing of the interviewee doesn't realize they're being tricked by talking to a caricature rather than a real person. And the absolute best version is when they were talking to a scientist who specialized in genetics and Ali G asked, well, why is it that you can't make everybody black? And his response is, well, you would say that because you are black. And he's not. He is Jewish. Ethnically, he is Jewish. He's not black. But because of the accent, because of the outfit, even though that genetic scientist knew in a part of his brain that he's talking to a white man, it, it was it just, oh, it blew my mind. It blew everybody's minds at that point. But then he created Borat, which is this sort of well-meaning journalist from Kazakhstan, and he's a complete innocent, but with very traditionalist and therefore sort of sexist and racist ideas and so he would literally be sitting there again with like people who should know better but getting them to agree that like oh women have the brain the half the size of men is like okay why are you saying that you know that's not true you know that's going to get you into a lot of trouble and it was kind of like tricking people it's the, the satirical side is showing you how these people who are meant to be incredibly smart aren't necessarily as smart as you think they are and can be led into traps. They're not smart enough to spot that they are being manipulated. And I actually don't like that type of comedy. That's very cringy for me. It's like it's like watching a car crash. It's like, okay, this is very clever and I know the point it's trying to make, but oh, it's setting my teeth on edge, quite frankly. But it worked really well. And then that character was then turned into a movie and it was huge. It went everywhere. Then he did Bruno, which again came from the Ali G show, this sort of like extremely pompous Austrian fashion reporter. And then he created The Dictator uniquely for a movie, which was, I mean, that was a bit of a weaker satire. It was very funny. It's one of my youngest son's favorite films, but satirizing dictators, they're already pompous and exaggerated. And of course they kill people as well. The other thing that both Borat and things like The Dictator also do 
is just show how easy it is to get people to casually getting into anti-Semitism, which obviously, as a Jewish man, he's sort of showing everybody, this is why Jewish people are still so edgy. This is why Israel really feels it needs to exist because we're threatened everywhere else. So it's a really powerful and interesting idea. And obviously it has to be pure satire if he is sitting there being Borat, being incredibly anti-Semitic, because obviously Sasha Baron Cohen doesn't believe these things, but it gets him into trouble with the kind of, I don't like using these phrases because anybody who uses them is obviously out to get them. But there are people out there, social justice warriors or keyboard warriors as they're sometimes called, I prefer the term, there are some people out there who are the professionally offended. Basically, they are waiting to be offended. And it's like, well, maybe this isn't aimed at you, and maybe you're missing the joke. Because the point of satire is it's trying to expose, I use that word in the definition, it's trying to show how quickly people can become racist, sexist, anti-Semitic, whatever it may be. It's a way to show you how dangerous some of these thought processes can be. It's important in a healthy democracy, guess where this stuff was going to be invented in the past? In a healthy democracy, you need people to pick at the leaders because everybody wants to claim when they're the leader that they're good at this. That's at the very least. I'm good at this job. But you need people to say, what are you? Really? Prove it to me. However, even worse is when you get dictators saying, I'm not just good at this job. I'm better than you. I am this sort of semi-deified person with Stalin. This happened with Mao. This happened with Hitler, okay? And it's happened with Gaddafi. It happened with Saddam Hussein. Anytime you're running a kind of military dictatorship, you basically have this cult of personality going on about it. Now there, being satirical in those situations can get you in hot, hot water. At the time of recording, just a few days ago, there was a Chinese comedian. What I find interesting is in China, whenever they're being edgy, then of course they're never being edgy about their own government because that could get you in very hot water. They're being edgy and rude about other countries because yeah, that's okay. But somehow a Chinese comedian basically did a comedy routine at the expense of the Chinese army. And he has been fined the equivalent of $2 million and he's gonna have prison time. That's an incredibly brave man, but that kind of satirical side of things is oh so important. Now, there was satire in Russia during the time of the Soviet Union, but it was never broadcast. It was whispered amongst people. It was a bit dangerous. But whereas in these sort of places where there are these kind of military dictatorships, these police states, it's an act of bravery in they say Western Europe and America, it's more a case of just trying to deflate the egos of certain people. It isn't as brave because you're not going to be attacked or locked away in prison, things like that. And for the record, one of my biggest pet... Ha- hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. 
Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Which admittedly, I don't tend to hear from my friends nowadays that we're all round about the age of 50. But you hear this a lot with young people. Certainly, I remember hearing this is we're living in a police state. Well, if you really were living in a police state, you'd be very scared of saying that because the police state would then round you up for pointing out that it's a police state and it's authoritarian. Don't believe me? Ask all the disappeared in Argentina. Oh, wait, you can't. They all were killed by the government for basically being dissenters. Just ask the Chinese guy right now. There's some real risks out there. Like I say, absolutely, in a healthy democracy, we have to poke fun at and pick at the policies of the people in charge, the powerful. Because at the very least, it's a pressure release, but more importantly, it can sometimes lead people to realise we're going in the wrong direction. I was a little bit surprised growing up with things like Have I Got News For You, which is a sort of satirical chat show, comedy, quiz type thing on, on the BBC. And they were always hammering, again, I'm going to say quite rightly, the Conservative Party. So that when Labour came in in 1997, I thought, oh, well, you know, they clearly didn't like the Conservatives. They must love Labour. And was kind of surprised that almost without missing a beat, they just were doing the same kind of criticisms and mocking. But we've got a completely different political system there. And sometimes I would argue that satire can get a bit exhausting. If all you're ever going to do is saying that's rubbish, that's wrong. Oh, I wouldn't do it that way. Okay, fine, you're pointing out the flaws, but you're never actually saying how you should do it. You know, what is the answer? Because you probably don't have one either. So, yeah, satire itself is kind of a flawed system. And I'm giving you some sort of modern examples. I'm about to give you a few more. So I have given you some British examples there, and I'm not going to go into non-English speaking countries because I just don't know enough about their satire. But what I would say is there's a great series called American Vandal. Now, this is an example of satirical situations that aren't aimed at politics. And basically, if you don't know, American Vandal was created by Dan Parole and Tony Yacenta. I hope I've got your, your names right there. And there's two series on Netflix. It, it then got cancelled. And basically, there was, in season one, there was a moment when a series of teachers' cars in a college, but basically we're talking about sixth form if we're in Britain here, high school, the series of teachers' cars had what could only be described as phalluses spray canned onto them. And yet nobody knew who did it. And therefore there's then an investigation. This is what's called American Vandal because this documentary crew is trying to reveal who actually created, who created the distraction, who actually did the damage kind of thing. Now, how is this in any way satirical? Because the whole thing is done like one of these true crime podcasts or one of these sort of true crime documentary series that just go on and on and on. They've all got their tropes. They've all got their sort of like deliberate red herrings and leading you down one way and it's just a complete dead end. But hey, that content, it's all about content. It's like I heard one comedian do a joke. I liked it as they themselves was doing a joke about podcasts, about true crime podcasts. And it goes episode 233, the beginning. And it's like just that one line, perfect, because they do ramble on and on. There was the documentary series on Netflix about making the murderer. And it's like in there, there is a really gripping two hour 
documentary but it goes on for 10 episodes it's like 10 hours long and it's like there's a lot of tracking shots of rusted cars which has got nothing to do with anything you're just filling in time so american vandal if you like reveals through exaggeration these tropes and tricks he's trying to convince you some sort of conspiracy there just isn't one. Oh my god to sort of say do we really need these and as soon as you do it on something less serious than murder just basic vandalism and people are talking just as seriously about spray canning phalluses on cars as seriously as like yes i think i saw the murderer walking down with a dark hood in in a dark corridor it's like you're doing this for effect, aren't you? There are other ways to do documentaries. So 10 out of 10 to American Vandal. However, I am going to say that the greatest TV show that's satirical is a sort of mixture of the best of Britain and America because we've got Veep starring Julia Louise Dreyfus. She plays the Veep. What's a Veep? That's the vice president, okay? So the vice president of America. She plays Selena Meyer who is continually bouncing from one catastrophe to another. And this is created by Armando Iannucci, who also created The Thick of It, which was basically the same thing about sort of incompetent politicians in Britain. Then he went to America and he did Veep, and that lasted longer, and there were more episodes of it. And he was creator, like the typical American thing. Other writers got involved. But it's great anyway. It, if you like In the Thick of It, you'll like this. Also, In the Thick of It got a movie, In the Loop, which is another masterclass of satire as well. So all of this is great. He also did The Death of Stalin, which is another great, great satire of just the extremes of the Stalinist regime. That is also fascinating. So Iannucci, you get all the love from me. You know, you're brilliant at all kinds of satire. Well done, you. But what elevates Veep is while this is about sort of general incompetence, the key thing here is the Jonah character, played beautifully by Timothy Simons. He's a very tall guy, and basically, for most of the series, he's kind of, he's just an irritant. He's one of these sort of, like, blowhards who thinks they're better than they are. He has a tiny bit of power. He has, like, a, a you know, in the series one, he has access to the White House, and therefore he thinks he's better than everybody else in Selena Meyer's team who don't have automatic access to the White House, even though he's basically the absolute lowest of the low in the White House. You know, a little bit of power goes straight to the head kind of thing. So he's just annoying. He's a fool. He's a buffoon. He, you know, it's the perfect thing to sort of satirize these people who think I'm important just because I've got this pass or just because I've got this job title. He was never meant to be anything else as a character until we get the Donald Trump presidency, at which point... In the last series of Veep, Selena Meyer has to do a deal with the devil. And she ends up working with Jonah, who's getting more and more popular. And he's saying more and more incendiary, stupid, dumb things. And the, but the more he says them, says them, the more popular they are. And the more his team are begging her not to mess around with Jonah, because we know what an idiot he is. And he ends up becoming president, basically. So this character that was designed for one function ends up being seamlessly repurposed to do a satire of the literal politics happening in America at the time. And again, whatever you may think of that, you may be a huge Donald Trump fan, fine, but you have to at least respect the fact that he divided the nation like never before. Now, you may be 100% on his side, or you may be 100% against him, but that's the thing. He was undoubtedly popular with a certain type of person and able to, if you put the words of various controversial statements take them out of the mouth of Donald Trump and put them into the mouth of Ronald Reagan or Bill Clinton 
they would have been completely unelectable. Absolutely nobody would stand for it. It's almost, this is if you like one of the problems with satire. We are now at the point where you get somebody like the ex-president of the United States saying something so wild in terms of like a conspiracy theory or something so racist or hurtful to another human being that it's like if you created a spoof of it, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference of the satirical statement and the real statement because you can't get more extreme than the extremes that they've kind of gone to. So this is why idiocracy kind of looks like a democracy now. Not democracy, a documentary, I should say. Because, yeah, <laughs> that's kind of the world we live in now, which is a little bit depressing. But animation has always been great for satire. You've got the granddaddy of them all, The Simpsons. There are loads of satirical episodes of that. Obviously, Family Guy was heavily influenced by Simpsons. Perhaps the greatest of all of the animated satires is South Park. I'm going down to South Park, gonna have myself a time. Friendly faces everywhere, humble folks without temptation. And South Park, like Idiocracy, like some of these other things, has got into hot water. To try and keep myself out of hot water, I'll use the example of Isaac Hayes. This is just an absolutely amazing soul singer. You know, he sung Shaft. You know, he just had just the, the biggest career in the 1970s. He is a musical genius and he has that rich baritone voice. And so they used him as the character of Chef. And for series after series, South Park would go after the Christian right or the right to have guns or gay rights or whatever. Just basically anything they were happy to have a go at. They are an equal opportunities offender, okay? And Isaac Hayes absolutely ran along with them. You know, there was even a number one hit song sung by Isaac Hayes in the character of Chef talking about his incredible meals that he makes and his chocolate salty balls. Which obviously is about his food and couldn't possibly be about anything else. So anyway, you know, Isaac Hayes was having a whole second career thanks to Chef. But then they did an episode on Scientology. And Isaac Hayes is a Scientologist and basically said, I'm offended by this. You, you can't say this about m my beliefs, my religion. And that's the problem with satire, because it's not trying to pick a side. It's trying to pick at everything. It's trying to pick holes in the logic of anything and everything, including religion, which is a very easy place to go, because no religion, I don't care which one you follow, none of them make sense to somebody outside that religion who is just look, comparing what is in the scriptures compared to actual logic and, you know, physics. But again, whatever you believe, I can't deny that, you know, you, you do you, you believe what you got to believe, but you also have to remember there are lots of, I mean, there are literally billions of people out there that don't believe what you believe. And so South Park, fine, you know, we've had a go at these other religions, why not also have a go at Scientology? But at that point, Isaac Hayes goes, well, if you want my voice, you can't use me anymore. And so what do they do? They killed Chef in the most violent and also ridiculous way, so they never have to bother with that character ever again. But another one to do with the black community is they had all the original characters from South Park are white and Colorado is largely a white state, but that doesn't play very well to the rest of America. So they were kind of obliged to put in a black character. So what do they call him? Token, as in he's the token black character. Genius. But then what made it even more genius is about 
10, 15 years after introducing this character, they then had a satirical episode about Lord of the Rings. Now people get sort of geeking out about this kind of stuff. Yeah, I'll put my hand up for that. Fine. And then you discover that his name is Tolkien. And his father was a huge Lord of the Rings nut and named him Token, Tolkien. And therefore, at one point, there's a character staring out of the screen going, what, did you really believe his name was Token? You know, who names their child Token? And even though they had, it's just like layer upon layer of like, you know, satirical, metaphysical humor. Oh, the fourth wall, fifth wall, etc. are broken. Just huge amount of respects to the South Park guys. But again, anytime they basically poke the right, all of the people who tend to be more left-leaning on South Park go, yay! But then whenever they poke a holy cow of the left, they get, oh, South Park's lost its mojo. They're not as good as they used to be. It's like, whoa, 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 whoa. All they're doing is applying the same rules to everything. It's just you don't like it when they pick on your guy. So, yeah, I give them huge amounts of credit and respect for that. I've talked a lot about it, but you can see that any kind of satire basically is like a time capsule. In a hundred years' time, looking at the episodes of South Park, it'll be great for a social historian because they'll see, well, these were the hot topics of the day a hundred years ago. And it'll be the same thing with Veep. It's like, oh, I get that. Idiocracy, etc. And we've actually already got examples of that because, okay, I'll now start at the very beginning. There absolutely were satirical plays at the time of Athenian democracy. Like I say, healthy democracy, somebody needs to poke at that. And so, yeah, that's where it all starts. But it wasn't called that. They were just comedies. However, we have to get into the Roman era where we get the phrase lanx satura. And lanx means kind of mixture and satura means full. Saturated, it's where we get the word saturated from. So basically the full mix, the full medley, it's kind of like almost overloaded with choice. That's literally what it means, but that's where the word satire comes from. It's kind of like it's full. There's lots of hidden meanings in what you're seeing. You have to look for it if you like. And that's what basically it comes from. And the first time that word of satire is actually used is in the first century AD. And the person who uses it is Marcus Quintilian famous writer of the time but this is about 500 years after the Greeks were actually doing it so I'm not saying that Quintilius invented it but he's the first person to label that particular type of comedy that particular type of play as a, a satire now satirical stuff does pop up in things like the medieval era but there weren't as many readers or things like that you get kind of satirical plays but we don't have copies of them we just sort of like been alluded to we get get some very weird pictures doodled by monks in the corners of various manuscripts are they satire are they daydreams are they just being rude who knows once the cat's out of the bag satirically speaking it continues through history you get little snippets of it little echoes of it but it takes basically a millennium or more to get into really into its stride once again and to sort of finish off the story and start leading into modern day satire just before i do that as always i'm going to say look please click subscribe do all the good stuff give us a review you can reach out to me i'm at gem on twitter tell me what are your favorite satirical comedies be great to hear that give me ideas i'd love to hear from people you know just generally reach out and talk to me on twitter that's the main way to to catch me Hello. Anyway, I will now jump forwards to we get various satirical cartoons. Once we get into the era of printing, 
Then we start having the sort of mass production being able to produce uh, out into the world. A great example would be during the Napoleonic Wars, where we got literally English publications with images of just like this completely hook-nosed, distorted little Napoleon, and he's always little as well. But, you know, sometimes all he is is a head out of a boot with a big elaborate hat on. So it's almost like he's that small. He's basically a foot and a head and a hat. And, and that's it. Because we were at war with him. He was killing our people. So, yeah, that, that would be a reason to do it. But, and, and to try and get a child into sort of something like the Napoleonic era, which is complicated and not particularly relevant to their day-to-day -day in the 21st century, showing them images is a great way to do it. There are loads of them, you know, some sort of fat guy carving up the world like it's a slice of steak or something like that. All these kind of sort of political cartoons are indeed satire, and, and those sorts of things absolutely predate what I'm about to mention. But the one that sort of like highlights this and is still going today is Punch magazine, published in Britain, started in 1841. It has managed to be shut down a number of times, but it's still kind of going, and basically it's been doing political cartoons at the time of the start of Queen Victoria's reign moving forward. You know, it would mock people like Disraeli, and it would also mock people like Margaret Thatcher moving forwards more than a century later. So Punch is an incredible repository of this kind of satirical thinking and current affairs of that time, which going back to what I said about South Park in 100 years, well, we're now, and we go back 150 years, we can see what was going on in Punch, and it's really useful for social historians. So there we go, it's sort of like a, a full circle going on there. Is it my favourite kind of comedy? I guess when it lands, it lands better than anything else. But as always with comedy, what's funny is very personal. So if this isn't your bag, I get it. I hear you. But it makes lots of people laugh. And more importantly, it can sometimes make the people in power sit up and pay attention and realise they've got to do something differently. And with that thought, I'm going to leave you. And as always, another episode coming soon.